Welcome to another edition of the Pirate Podcast. For today's episode, I spoke with Oliver Holler, the founder and CEO of Speed Invest, a seed stage venture fund based in Vienna with offices in Munich and San Francisco. Oliver told me the story of how he went from a background in philosophy and economics to starting a company during the dot-com boom and how he persevered in a time of almost going bankrupt, as well as his takeaways from that time that he applies to his role as an investor today. Enjoy listening. First of all, I think we'll start by having you introduce yourself in a few words. Sure. Uh, so thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Oliver. Uh, I'm 46 years old, uh, married, uh, four kids, three almost adults, one 10 year old, living in Vienna most of the time. So there's some traveling uh, between our different offices and to our different founders. Um, yeah, I studied economics and, and philosophy actually in Vienna and New York. Nice. Uh, and uh, we're almost on my way to doing an academic career and then the entrepreneurial gene caught me and I moved directly from university to my first startup and yeah, never looked back. <laughs> Sounds awesome. We'll dig a bit into um, how you went from philosophy and economics into, into the startup scene a bit later. Um, that, that sounds like it, it might be an interesting story. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about um, where you work currently, Speed Invest? Um, what do you guys do? So Speed Invest is a seed stage venture fund. We started this in 2011 with a very specific premise. Uh, I guess we'll go into this a little bit later, but my whole idea as a founder was that venture is really, especially at seed stage, is a, it's not a model that works very well. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we tried to come up with different ways how to think about it. I think a lot of people actually thinking how to rethink re, re the whole venture process or the product of venture. And so did we, and we came up with a model that is very much um, trying to combine the classical seed stage venture model where we introduce, where we invest 500K plus minus in, in very specific areas, sectors where we feel we have... Uh, a high comfort level, but we also introduce very, very senior partner level resources, uh, basically us, um, that work very closely in very operational roles for a limited period of time with the founders. Mm -hmm. so, so if you look just at the numbers, Speedinvest, we have a 100 million fund. Uh, we have we are invest uh, basically always as a lead investor in seed stage, then we can co continue to invest in follow on rounds. Um, but in this initial phase, when we invest at, at seed stage, uh, we have currently 12 partners um, and another 15 additional people that work then on operational programs. Um, so that's a very different model. It also go, it, it, it's not just on the, on the side towards the founders, it's also on the side towards, mm -hmm. the, uh, towards our LPs, that this is really a different model. So, so when we talk to founders, we actually ask them to uh, go into basically two types of agreements with us. One is a classical venture agree investment agreement where we get equity for our uh, cash. Uh, but we also ask them to go to define together specific milestones, mm -hmm. specific tasks uh, that we as speed investing to achieve for them. So everybody okay. talks about the value add. Everybody talks about... Um, that the investor is a, is a co-founder and so on and so on. And mostly this is just promises and this is just very uh, lofty uh, promise 
stuff. In our case, we are, we are defining milestones, we are defining uh, targets that we need to reach. Three customers, uh, two new people, two, two, a new CFO that we hire, a new CMO, um, big US partners that we need to bring on board, etc. And if we, as a, as a speedinvest, achieve those goals, then we actually uh, have, a, have an equity kicker for the fund uh, on top of the cash investment. Okay, nice. So the, the startups can actually, in a, in a way, hold you guys accountable for the promises you make to them. Exactly. And it's 100% awesome. callable by the founders. Uh, it's, it's actually so there, there are milestones, mm-hmm. but we don't have any legal means to, so to say, fight it. If the founders feel that, the, that those milestones have not been reached, we, uh, we, we take all the risk. Uh, but in, in reality, uh, this exactly triggers exactly the opposite. It triggers a, a, a massive, so to say, joining at the hips. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we rarely have the cases that these things uh, are actually called. But it's much more that, that we, we tend to work together, even as we always know uh, things change and, and uh, product is not ready to ship, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But so it's a different model. It's also a different model to our LPs. We have a much, we, we pay ourselves much lower fees personally mm-hmm. uh, because we are so many more people, 12 partners. Uh, and we, on the other hand, we are much more incentivized towards exits or towards uh, eventual success uh, payouts. Uh, so, so our model at the end of the day is very much more aligned to a startup okay. payout model than to a, to a venture payout model. Nice. Was there anything, because it is so different, was there anything that inspired you to start it because you maybe saw how it uh, didn't work in the market or or what was actually the motivation behind structuring the model in in such a different way? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I've been almost all of my life uh, on the founder side and I've been working with VCs and uh, I think they're most, most VCs are actually really good guys and really uh, smart guys and often they do have entrepreneurial background nowadays at least in the past it was different um, but in reality they didn't have time they didn't have the time and the resources and also not incentive structure to really help me um, and apart honestly speaking I did my founder VC battles have uh, now already 10 years ago or more um, and back then our VCs really didn't have a lot of clue what we were doing Nowadays it's different, but the, the fundamental problem that uh, the amount of time resources spent by partner per company is still extremely limited. Plus the incentive model of a VC partner is very clearly uh, driven towards the very few, very big exits and not uh, towards seed stage companies where um, the outcome is really, really unclear. Okay. So these two things, uh, time constraint on the one hand, uh, incentive model that goes to big, big uh, 100 million plus exits and not to those first 12 months where everything is in the dark and you need to find your your way. Uh, that Both of these things really work against the seed stage venture model in my view. So that's okay. why we came up with this new, new approach. All right. Any um, other like things that you think you guys do differently from other funds or is, is that basically at the core it's really that the two-sided agreement you have with the founders well the, that approach has a lot of um, implications that drive us in a very different direction for example even when we started this in 2011 as a 10 million micro fund we had already our own u.s office in san francisco now it's already three three full-time people two partners one principal 
uh, that work uh, solely for our founders there. So we don't mm -hmm. have a, we don't source deals in the U.S. It's only for these kind of um, business development, corporate development engagements that this our team there uh, is focusing on. We have started our own HR recruiting company that is also mm. exactly uh, just solely for the purpose of helping our companies uh, finding faster, better people. Uh, so again, uh, if you if you compare this, it's it's maybe in the U.S. you have Andreessen Horowitz, which is, is driving a very similar model, mm -hmm. very trying to professionalize functional units, trying to professionalize fundamental business support uh, for companies and, and putting a big emphasis on this. Of course, Andreessen Horowitz can do this with a couple billion under management. Sure. <laughs> we had to come up with a bit more uh, entrepreneurial approach uh, to good. make this happen. <laughs> nice. But that was the, that's the idea, basically. So in that sense, there is a lot of different. And we are now just starting with a new growth hacking initiative that goes in a similar direction. Great. So when you invest into startups, what are the the things you like to you like to see? What really um, makes a startup uh, worth to invest in for you? Well, that's that's one of those things. Is venture uh, uh, you will get the same answer from any VC, and then the question is how, <laughs> because everybody will tell you it's the team, the market, uh, and the fundamental unit economics or business, uh, are trying to understand if this can scale and can become a big business, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the big trick is to to find out all these things in two three meetings because that's what you have uh, as a VC if you want to invest in seed stage it's it's one two founder conversations then a workshop maybe one more meeting and then at the end of the day you have to come to a decision so that's the difficult part the fundamental core so to say criteria are the same for everybody but uh, the process to get to a decision I think that's where people differ. And then in our case, it's it's much it's very little numbers driven. Uh, it's much more group dynamics, uh, interaction uh, type of response driven. So we try to ex extrapolate from the answers, from the tech, from the workshop. We have always a one-day workshop. We work on a twelve to eighteen-month plan with our founders. Mm -hmm. And then the big question together as a team, and it's never for us a one partner decision, it's always a team decision, at least two, three partners sit in these workshops and have different views on, on the team. And what we try to find out is if, if, if the founder team has the, flex, the mental flexibility on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, so to say, this uh, entrepreneurial ignorance uh, to, to drive their idea forward while being very, very fast and very flexible in adapting. So if we, if we find a team that, that kind of listens to our ideas, but basically ignores them and doesn't, doesn't take them into account, doesn't think about them, doesn't take them up, um, that's one of those um, workshops where we will clearly not invest afterwards and vice versa, obviously. All right. Um, yeah. What are some of the investments that you did in the, the recent years? Some of the, can you name some of the companies that, uh, that you'd like to highlight? Well, I mean, Speed Invest has a very broad portfolio. We are, um, we have uh, currently, we are, so we still we invested 20 companies in the first fund. We now are already at 40, 42 companies oh, in the second quite fund. A few. <laughs> uh, in addition, we have Finance Ventures, which is our pre seed um, joint venture together with Finance, which does pre seed investment. So that's another 25. So <laughs> a lot of companies. Um, 
as you maybe know, we have been uh, the most active fintech investor in Europe in the last you know, two, three years. Uh, uh, so that's, that's a big portfolio coming out of there. Also a lot of lot in Germany um, and, and the UK and increasing the last 12, 18 months. We've seen more and more deals in the UK. Um, so, yeah, so, so fintech is one big aspect of our business, uh, roughly one third coming from there. Uh, second big uh, pillar for us is deep tech. Uh, so deep tech companies, we just invested, for example, in Aircloak, uh, uh, that, that's a great German uh, deep tech company that we found. Uh, we also have a company called Bitmovin from the first fund uh, from Austria that is doing extremely well. Uh, so that's a, that's a second pillar and that's where the US office really comes to play because these deep tech companies have a huge, uh, I mean, those are the ones that can really work very fast, very early in the Valley or in the US market. So that's the focus of the US office on this segment. And the third is, is marketplaces. Uh, we've uh, had our first big success story with Spock uh, out of Austria. We have a very good company called uh, Tourator that's doing re really, really well. Um, so, so that's the third, third area where we feel we, we can play. Okay, nice. Let's switch over a bit and talk uh, a bit more about you as a person and uh, yeah, you as an entrepreneur and founder also. Um, first of all, where'd you grow up? I grew up in, in Vienna, Austria. Uh, Spent a lot of time on the lake, water skiing. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, uh, I think up until 20 or 21, my my sole ambition was to become a professional water skier. And nice. I really, really didn't care about anything else, to be honest. Um, then I did this actually for a year and found out it's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> Driving the boat all day. So I had to uh, kind of re readjust and um, yeah. I guess uh, then I uh, moved to university and, and started to find my way around there. And you said it before, you uh, went to university to study uh, philosophics and, and economics? or Yeah, yeah. I guess was, I was one of those guys that had no clue what to, how my life would look like. So I did one, one university degree where I figured that's how I will earn money and one where I was really interested <laughs> in. <laughs> And in Vienna, honest, both both studies were not that difficult, so it was not that big of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did that. Um, I, at the same time, the one thing I was really starting to become interested in is I, I started a little bit of an NGO uh, mm -hmm. during my study that was focusing on on, on social on, on computer models of social phenomenon, so politics. Uh, so social phenomenons, whatever, and we started to create games out of this, and, okay. and that was actually the kind of the springboard of my first startup um, that we that was then that was then coming out straight out of university. Okay, so so yeah, let's let's talk a bit about uh, about that phase because so you you say you, you weren't really um, entrepreneurial before you had lots of sports in mind, then then went to study something. Uh, something different, but then that's sort of one of the probably defining moments where you realize, hey, maybe I could I could do something with this and start my own company. Or uh, can you talk a bit about that phase? Sure. Yeah, I, I was always very competitive and very, I guess, um, eager to achieve something. Um, but I wasn't clear where to direct that energy, and 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 so out of the university, really, honestly, didn't give me the platform to to 
to like do this. So it, so the one area was this little club that we founded, and then then I got a scholarship for Columbia University in New York okay, for nice. economics. Uh, so I, I went there for two years, and but by that time I already had this uh, this NGO up and running, and we were doing small little projects on the side. Um, and then, but then all my energy went into academics and doing my PhD at, at Columbia University, and I did all the exams, and it was a, it was really difficult actually. It was uh, like all all my peers were math uh, masters uh, and and total brainiacs on <laughs> like deep, deep math, not not the math you learn at the business school. Um, so. But I, I somehow managed. Uh, but then, it was, it was, that was my life decision back then, and I, I could have continued to stay at Columbia mm-hmm. and become, at the end of the day, an economics professor, or go back to university and ha- focus 100% on that little scrappy NGO slash startup that we started two three years ago, and that had like uh, 20,000 shillings in revenue, which is like 2,000 euro. <laughs> <laughs> well, but revenue is revenue, right? <laughs> Exactly, but that that was in in ninety eight or ninety nine, okay. I think. So so the whole first dot com bubble already started to to emerge, and it was pretty clear that there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I took the decision. I moved back from New York to to Vienna, and we we basically focused hundred percent on on that company and. And I think the main motive was that I, I started to learn how very slow the feedback cycles in academic, academia are. Mm-hmm. If you write a paper and you're really creative about it, it takes you three years before you learn something, <laughs> before you get feedback. And in, in the startup world, as we know, feedback is very, very direct, very fast and very brutal. Uh, and I did like that. So I think that was one of the key drivers. Yeah, and then we moved to Austria, and and I, I focused hundred percent on that thing, and then the first dot com wave came along, and we were swept with it to crazy heights, and then very even more crazy lows. Okay, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a bit about you know how do you, how you made that decision because I think it's always something people people struggle with when they have different options and decide to stay in academia or start something, and there is of course risk involved. Were there um, people around you, maybe uh, mentors that that influenced and helped you with those decisions, or um, were you basically did you do that on your own? Uh, I never had mentors. Um, I don't know. Maybe that I think that's also a personality type mm-hmm. of thing. Um, I never had. I never. I always had problems with uh, superiors. <laughs> <laughs> so I never had this. I did have friends, um, and and when we started this little NGO, it was basically with my best friends from okay. the university, and that was a big trigger for me to to work with them and and and, and really. And at university, uh, academia is very lonely. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. if you work on your PhD thesis, you're on your own. While working in a startup, you, you, it's a different experience. And I was, I was clearly more driven towards this type of work style than, than being alone. And that has continued up to today. I think any company that I've been doing so far was always not just a company, but a, a bunch of friends, mm-hmm. people who are that really like each other and that, that's something you can do in the startup universe and the VC universe nowadays <laughs> um, and which is very difficult in other areas yeah 
Is there, but maybe even if, if not mentors, is there like a piece of advice or something that, that stuck with you that you like to remember? Or even if it's just a quote from somebody uh, you don't maybe personally know, something that you use as guidance or something? I don't know. So clearly, yeah, I, I kind of found this in myself, to be honest. It, it was yeah, more, <laughs> I, try, I, I tried to envision myself 10 years forward. Uh -huh. And I looked uh, I, I carefully. Well, the one thing I did is I really carefully looked at, at peers, uh, at in this case, in my case, in academia, and how their life in 10 years would look like. And mm -hmm. it was pretty clear, actually. It was a very clear path, and specifically there. You know, next five years, you're going to spend at some weird west, southwestern, northwestern uh, small university in in the US uh, being assistant professor and then you have mm -hmm. to do this. So it was very clear and for me not very exciting. And uh, I think the one thing I completely underestimated uh, was the amount of, so to say, risk uh, and, mm -hmm. and um, down periods of life where you really suffer uh, in, in the startup world. <laughs> and if somebody would have told me, um, At least I would have started to work somewhere first before immediately jumping into my own adventure. <laughs> and, and I think if I would have done that, that would have saved me two, three years of very difficult uh, times. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so that would be my advice. I, I don't think it, like doing the, the thing what we did, like having zero experience and immediately starting your own thing. Uh, but that was again, of course, '99. There was yeah. no such thing as a digital ecosystem. Other companies where you can start, where you can do an internship or do a small job first. So, of course. All right. So, so you jumped into the adventure of uh, entrepreneurship, and then, uh, as you said before, uh, big highs and 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 even lower lows. Um, how did the the path go on from there? So, without going too much into detail, but we, we, we started this little company, we were three people, we had this first contract for basically game development, we did smart games, and we were the one of the very first to actually bring them to the internet, Java, uh, Java games back then. Um, yeah, and then, then suddenly there were all these VC guys around. Uh, coming from Germany mostly to Vienna <laughs> and, and were hunting startups because there were none. Um, and so they found us and they pumped uh, almost 4 million euros into us. Okay, wow. <laughs> uh, I, think, I do remember 17.25 million pre-money valuation. Uh, with, yeah, back then we had 100,000 euros in, 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 in accumulated revenues. No product, uh, no business plan. I mean, we did have wonderful Excel sheets, but we, <laughs> we had no, no plan what we were doing. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was basically a, a bullshit uh, bingo back and forth. We, we bullshitted them. They did the same with us. Uh, they, they got us to sign a, a, an agreement where we would co-invest with them and basically became personally liable for each, each of the founders for a couple hundred thousand euros. Oh, wow. Um, so that's different from now. Yes. <laughs> so they, 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 they got us on the hook there. And of course we signed it because we, we thought we were millionaires anyway. Uh, so pretty much we went through all the mistakes you could do. Uh, we opened four offices within the first six months across uh, from New York to Hamburg to London, hired expensive salespeople. And, and of course this was nothing. 
And, and then the bubble burst and we found ourselves with almost no cash left and 70 people on the payroll and and and, and the investors that were basically giving us another couple hundred K against uh, the company. So that was when the dark time started and we we went through those. We, we survived. We, it was almost two and a half years until wow. we came out um, with a business model that worked and with roughly 25, 20 people that we would were able to pay out of cash flow. And, and finally a sector, and specific, in our specific case, the mobile sector, um, where we knew what we were doing and then we had a, a more and more international business. Um, but that was, that was all together four years and, and most of that time was really tough. Yeah. Where, where do you think that, that perseverance comes from or came from back then? Because I think it's a, especially in that time where a lot of people would probably rather have given up or actually did so. Um, what do you think pushed you to just keep on going and even though it was uh, tough and you were struggling to, to keep on pushing? I guess a combination of personality and in, and economic incentives. <laughs> uh, so on the one hand, I said, I'm, we were still the same team from the day one, so we did manage to stay together and, and, and fight. So that was clearly something that, that kept us going. I personally, I'm not somebody just, I'm, I'm a bit, yeah, sometimes almost ignorant to, to facts in the sense that I tried to make things happen. And, and that was clearly there one, one aspect. But also, as I said, this, this, this aspect that we were on the hook for, in my case, almost uh, half a million euro, personally, mm-hmm. it, was, it was not that easy to walk away and say, okay, I just start something new. It uh, would have been basically private insolvency, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was back then something you don't really want to have on your resume as a, as a 26, 27-year-old guy. Um, yeah, so and there was always a, a glimmer of hope. <laughs> do, do you think maybe uh, so? So you said before it's it's good that it's or it, that it's very untypical from how it is today that you're basically personally liable. So now um, part of that was maybe a reason for the success in the end and pushing through. Do you think we would need more of a little bit uh, of that in, in today? Um, are people becoming too uh, t- basically? Um, to risk, um, not not risk friendly, but basically uh, taking that out of the game. Um, no, no, I don't think so. I think, honestly speaking, um, it would have been a good idea back then to um, to shut down the company and start something new. Because okay. it, at the end of the day, that's what we did. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we completely remodeled the company to a completely different business model, to a completely different. And we also, uh, I mean, our investors have have written off the company already okay. for a long time, and then. And then, of course, they woke up and saw, okay, yeah, there's something happening. <laughs> then we, we bought out those investors. And okay. so we kind of doubled down with a lot of borrowed borrow money from family and friends and so on. <laughs> so I think, uh, like, fundamentally, the same process could have, would have nowadays would happen that you look your investors in the eye and say, guys, we, this is not working. Let's okay. do something new. We are happy to in, invite you again to our new company. Be open about it and not have to, like, maneuver yourself three years through some strange periods <laughs> so yeah so you took a lot of a lot of basic perspective out of that also probably that you apply to uh, your job today being on the other side uh, being the investor yeah yeah and that, that, that is something that was clearly uh, this period was clearly the one that still 
so to say, uh, drives a lot of everything I'm doing in business because mm -hmm. I do remember that and I want to make sure that our entrepreneurs have a different experience and, and that we can shortcut a lot of the, the things we had to go through. And I think that's possible. It's not that hard. <laughs> but back then it, it was not nobody's fault. It was simply nobody knew better. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was no experience with anything like this, at least not in my ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. So, so today, of course, and, and with that, we can switch a bit talking about the, um, the startup industry in general or also how you perceive it right now, the, the ecosystem in, in Europe and in, in Austria and, uh, especially. Do you think um, that, I mean, of course, there's, there's more knowledge basically around, but um, are people still making some of the same mistakes we saw back then? You maybe did or has that become a lot better? It definitely has become better. Um, so maybe just to wrap up that story because the, there is an happy ending to that sure. story. So, so we, we did sell the company for almost 70 million euros all cash okay. to, to, to a U.S. Uh, uh, company in Verisign. I moved to the U.S. then and, and that's, when, that's when the whole thing matured in my head to start a venture fund because it was uh, such a big gap what I saw between the experience and the sophistication level on, in the valley versus in, in Europe. So when I moved back to Vienna, that was what I wanted to do. Nice, yeah. And and that's that's kind of bring me to where we are today. Um, so the big 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 difference is that you have uh, it's very very easy to build up knowledge and to exchange experience and to become sophisticated about what you do nowadays. I mean, mm -hmm. online, offline, peers, VCs, everybody's here. Everybody, even if it's maybe not in Vienna, but then in Berlin or in Munich or in London. It's not far, it's not difficult. That's a big difference and that's what you can see with the founders, most of them at least um, in the more more mature hubs in Europe. Uh, they really know what they're doing in terms of how to approach investors, how to work with on deals, etc. Um, the one thing that I feel personally is, is starting to kind of slip is operational excellence okay. and op operational focus. Um, and that's a function of cash. Um, it's uh, being an economist. It's very simple. If you have more cash to spend, uh, you you also um, the so to say that that the, the capital efficiency becomes less important. Mm -hmm. Very simple. And and that's what clearly is, I see a lot of our companies are, are building up burn rates very very fast. Become a bit bit too little careful in hiring maybe hire one more person than you would if you think about twice. Uh, so that's, there is clearly a, this, this kind of capital efficiency that always made European startups exceptional, in okay. my view. Uh, we're starting to lose a bit. So in a way, the, the founders in Europe are coming a bit more spoiled, at least in the early, early stages, uh, with, with maybe too much capital too early? Or, and that's basically then yeah, pushing yeah, okay. yeah, becoming spoiled. And I think that... The one thing when I moved to the US that it was so so striking, strikingly clear is that the teams in Europe that I worked with were, in terms of getting things done with little money and with little resources, were really massively outpacing their peers in the US. Okay. And I think that's a big, big, big strength. Uh, and I think we can still build big companies and we can still think big without losing that and that's kind mm -hmm. of the balance that i think is, is very critical for european founders to to do or to find 
Uh, and of course, that's it's always going to lean in one way or the other. Currently, we're leaning more. Let's do what the U.S. guys do and solve all, all problems around with money. So, okay, so 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 that's one of the aspects that maybe you you think should uh, should change or people should be aware of. Are there are there other things that you see that are currently still missing in Europe? I mean, it's it's still even now. Um, that there's so much activity going on. I think people always look sort of enviously to the U.S. and um, and I always try to understand, you know, what is what is your perspective on that? Like, what do you think is still missing to make the the really big success stories in Europe? Um, I mean, we're we're seeing more and more of those, but it's still there's still a gap to what what's happening in in, in the U.S. For example, or even sometimes in Asia. Um, what do you think is miss- missing? Is it maybe then the big money down the line, or what are some of the things you're seeing that that could be better? I mean, on a, on a macro perspective, uh, I think it's, uh, frankly speaking, time. Uh, it's it's just a matter of generations uh, okay. to some degree. So, so we can be hopeful. A, uh, no, totally. I, I really, if you look at, and that's also if you look at Austria, Vienna versus Berlin versus London, I think we are we are one or two generations behind in, in, in Austria in terms of building a mature startup ecosystem where you have founders, um, that are simply not satisfied with a hundred million exit. Uh, mm-hmm. Nowadays, if we, when I did my exit back then, a seventy million exit was crazy. It was yes, like yeah. big. Uh, nowadays, uh, it's already it's, it's it's great, but it's not uh, it's it's not the biggest thing in the world. Uh, so uh, I think these things need time. And then, of course, now if these people, I don't know, uh, if you look at the, the two founders from Spock. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a massive exit, uh, but of course, in comparison to US dimension, it was it was okay. It was not not nothing to write home about. But what what will they do now? They are they're young. They are they are like they have two more companies in them at least, uh, I think. And I, I think the the next one they will do will be will have a very different goal. And then I think that's that's kind of what we see. We see a lot of serial entrepreneurs. We see a lot of people with huge mindsets that are looking and and and. In setting themselves different peer levels than, mm-hmm. than in the past, and and that has been going on in the U.S. for 50 years and and in Europe for 10. And so that's that I think that's that's of course not very helpful, but but in, in on a macro level that's what it is. So what we do is we we bring our founders um, to the U.S. much earlier, mm-hmm. and maybe much more aggressive than others, uh, because we we see that the difference it can make in, in this kind of mindset. Okay, yeah, I think that's a that's a very important aspect then of kind of bridging that gap of knowledge and access to uh, people that have done it before uh, to close that earlier than they would probably do otherwise. Uh, um, what are some of the the really hot topics uh, you see right now? I mean, there's there's all these industries that get named uh, ever and ever again. Is there anything that you see that you think will become the the new big the new hot thing in the next five to ten years if we're looking at trends? So yeah, again, um, I guess everybody's already bored by VCs reiterating the same buzzwords. Um, so yes, so yes, it's AI. All these things are true. Um, so the one thing that is a bit counterintuitive, but we are we are doubling down on is marketplaces. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. It's one of those things. Uh, travel marketplaces. It's it's categories that have been around in, in venture and in digital forever. And you always, you always think everything has been done. Now, why would anybody care anymore? And at the same time, if we look at our deal flow and, and what's really happening on the founder level, we see a lot of activity. We see a lot of 
new marketplaces that become relevant uh, because of technology, uh, mm -hmm. because suddenly you have, uh, so to say, this, this famous SaaS-enabled marketplace models where technology enables uh, the scale uh, of, of a digital marketplace that maybe five years before has not been possible to do. And that, that, that opens up very new verticals, opens up very new opportunities in HR, in B2B uh, industry, manufacturing, logistics, where, where before the digital marketplaces were simply not, not working. So, so that's where we see a lot of trends going. Yeah. A lot of these things are using AI, are using big data, all these things. But it's uh, those at the end of the day are, are functions and not um, not industries. Yeah. Uh, not industry. So that's an area we we find interesting. Um, the other other aspect that we personally want to bet on, we haven't really done that much, but uh, we want to spend more time looking into it. So I think over the next five years, the European manufacturing uh, industry. Uh, companies will wake up and will become much, much more active. Uh, so this is already happening, um, but that's also very credible. Uh, so we, as we give our US office, we, we do spend a lot of time there. And if there's one area where they give us credibility and where they believe we are better than them, it's it's at the end of the day, so to say, this uh, German, Austrian, Mittelstand, yeah. uh, where, where there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of global champions that they don't have. Um, so there, there is envy there from their side. And and I think it would, it's going to be a natural thing for, for our world, for the digital world, to partner up with these global champions to do something. So. Okay, nice, yeah. And maybe, maybe finally, I sometimes like to ask that question. Um, if you could choose to work for any other company um, that is not Speed Invest right now, let's let's go into the uh, imaginatory world. What what uh, excites you personally, and where could you think any tech company or even traditional company? Is there anything uh, that you could imagine where where you would like to work and see how they are doing it right now? Mm, I guess. This would either be a boardroom of Amazon, okay. that would be cool, <laughs> uh, or something totally different that that would be somewhere uh, politics, uh, economics. Politics, okay. So going back to the roots of, of what you studied in a, in a way. Yeah, of course. I mean, we, I think we all do read books around the whole digital divide, mm -hmm. increase of in income inequality, uh, threats to our democracy systems. So I personally think that if I don't, if I don't do speed invest anymore, I'll, I'll try to work on those things. <laughs> Sounds good. So we, we can maybe look for the, the politician Oliver Holland a few years. No, 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 no. No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> for sure not. But, but uh, yeah. Trying to understand that better. Okay, also good. All right, Oliver. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this was this is really interesting. I've seen that that path and especially that phase of uh, perseverance you pushed through to and to get to where you are today. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, happy to do so. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, talk to you soon. Bye.